All right, so as we've been looking at this passage for several weeks, um, I was telling some folks this morning, I actually thought that uh, today we were going to finish up this text uh, and be able to move uh, move along, but um, by the time I got to the, the end of my, my notes and my manuscript, I had to go back to the top and take the sentence out that said we were going to be finished this week, so we're not going to be finished this week. Um, probably going to take us another couple of weeks now to uh, to get through this. Uh, but bringing about clarity, we've we've talked about uh, already uh, this great apostasy um, that that Paul references. Uh, but now taking a turn uh, more into to alignment with the man of lawlessness uh, and and who exactly is the man of lawlessness. Some translations may say uh, the man of sin, uh, but the ESV uh, uses the word lawless, which is probably the best interpretation of. Uh, of that word uh, when we look at the translation from the Greek. So looking at, at these 12 verses, we're going to kind of refine our focus uh, this morning kind of into that verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6 range uh, is where we're going to be. So first we see verse 3, for that day will not come, talking about not being deceived. So verse 3, let no one deceive you. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Well, what day? So verse 1 tells us, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being together, gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed or either by a spirit, spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That day of the Lord is it's kind of straightforward code for Jesus coming back right so that that's the second coming so when we see the day of the lord referenced in scripture it is always a reference and a pointer to the day of jesus christ's second coming his first coming being uh, the advent at his birth the second advent being his return uh, to judge the world uh, the living and the dead so talking about the context here of of the second coming of christ there is going to be this great rebellion or apostasy this great falling away uh, that, it, that takes place. Uh, and there's also the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed uh, in that time as well. So that day, the coming of the Lord, the return of Jesus, is not going to come unless these things happen first. So this is where we have to be cautious about getting spun up. And we see this in the church at Thessalonica. Uh, in First Thessalonians, uh, we dealt with uh, the coming of Christ and that the dead in Christ would be raised at his coming. So there was people who said, you know what? Hey, my buddy Steve uh, just died and we've been waiting on Jesus to come back and he hasn't come back yet, but Steve's dead. So what happens to Steve? Like he doesn't get to experience the coming. And Paul clarified that in 1 Thessalonians and said, no, 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 no. No, the dead actually will rise in Christ first. The dead will rise. Then the rest of us will be called up to meet him. So Paul gave clarity to the church and assurance to the church that just because you died or passed on this earth does not mean you're out of the game. Right? So you're still going to benefit at Christ's return having been resurrected or raised uh, to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we get into 2 Thessalonians and Paul is writing back to the church again, his second letter. And, and there's a new issue uh, that's kind of you know arisen. Now it's not just, hey, what about those people that have died and and what's going to go on you know, with, with them if Jesus comes back. Now it's a, you've got somebody in the church, some position of authority, perhaps even a teacher saying, 
Jesus has already come. And people are getting spun up and like, well, we missed this? What, what happened? How, how, do, how do we reconcile this? What do we do? So Paul is writing back now to, to deal with that particular issue. So looking at this, I think we have to kind of understand uh, a few different concepts here as we walk through this. Number one, don't be deceived. That day, Jesus' return is not going to happen unless the rebellion, the apostasy happens first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, he who is the son of destruction. So these, this is a, just a factual statement that Paul is giving to bring comfort to the church that, hey, guess what? Jesus hadn't come back yet. Don't pay attention and get caught up in what people are saying. He says that uh, in verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind, alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word. Uh, so you could have people claiming to give you a prophecy, giving you spoken word, claiming that they've got a letter from the apostles. Paul says not true. These things have to take place first before Jesus comes back. So it's, a, it's kind of a real clear level set uh, that Paul sets forward. And I think that it, it should also be understood that our views of the term Antichrist are often skewed by this big fancy word we call presupposition. Anybody know what presuppositions are? It means you presupposed something, right? That is basically what it means. So when we talk about presuppositions, these are, these are basically our, our mental state of understanding based on what we think we know. So your, your knowledge of something, regardless of how deep that knowledge may be, it could be a basic understanding, it could be an advanced understanding, but what you know about something, you will draw upon your resources in your mind and say, what, what do I know about that? Uh, and then you will draw a conclusion based on that, and, and that is a presupposition. You're saying, okay, well, my understanding of this is based on this knowledge, and that's, that's my position. That's, that's my presupposition. So you kind of start from that framework. So, for example, if I was to say the word Antichrist, some of you, most of you, likely all of you, will have some presuppositions about that. You would say, oh, I, I, yeah, I know about that Antichrist. You know, it's Barack Obama. Others would say, no, 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 it's Donald Trump. He's the Antichrist. People have these presuppositions that go on. And as a result, it, it causes people to kind of get spun up and look at things and try to contemplate things and understand things. But where are they getting that idea, that concept from about Antichrist? They're, they're drawing on what someone's told them, what they've read, and they're coming to this conclusion. It's a presupposition that based on A, B, and C, that equals D. Right? It's, that's the way our human minds go about thinking with presuppositions. So if I was to say the word Antichrist, you, you instantly have some presuppositions about that. You may say, oh, it's in the end times, there's going to be this man out of Europe, he's probably Russian, that rises to power and, and draws a peace accord with Israel and sets peace on earth and that sets up the millennium and, and you may have some, some thoughts about that based on things you've heard. But these are things that, these conclusions that are drawn are things that your mind is, is presuming or assuming. Now, presuppositions, they can lead you towards an understanding, but they can also lead you towards a misunderstanding or a misapplication. Uh, one of the most dangerous types of people that you will ever encounter 
is someone that says, well, I ain't got no presuppositions. I just go by what the Bible says. That's a dangerous individual. Because they're saying that they have no presumptions. They're saying that their framework is basically zero and that they just read that text and then out of thin air tell you what that is. No, you know that's not the case. You know they're drawing on some reference, some background, something. So there is a presupposition. They just don't want to admit that they have one. The reality is, is if we, if we admit that we have presumptions, if we, if we admit that we have presuppositions, we can then start with a corrective way of going about things. That we can see something in Scripture that we say, hey, you know what? Well, I, I had a presumption that this was different. But now I see what this says and it allows me to be corrected based on what Scripture is teaching. You're not bound to a certain way because you allow the Scriptures to guide you and change your mind. People who say they have no presuppositions, you cannot change their mind. They are not open to discussion about the text. They will argue on points and they will die on these points. Uh, that, that's the way that they live. So this is a very dangerous type of individual when they say that they have no presuppositions because the reality is, is that they do. Now as Christians, particularly as Baptists, we, we have a core set of presuppositions. You know, An example, we presuppose that God is God. Right? There, is no, there is no higher authority. There is no higher power. We just, we, hey, well, how do you know God is God? Because God is God. Well, where do you get that from? From the Scriptures. Well, how do you know the Scriptures are right? Because God gave it to us. Well, how do you know God is God? Because the Scripture says it. Right? So it's, that is what it is. We, we are presuppos, presuppositionalists by, by definition. That we have these presumptions. God is God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came to earth, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for the sins of humanity, was crucified, buried, dead, rose again on the third day, and ascended back to the Father. That, that, is a, that is foundational presuppositions that we have uh, as Christians. It's not up for debate. It, it's, it's not up for discussion. These are factual aspects of who we are and what we believe. We start from the presupposition that God created all things. In the beginning, God created. People say, well, where did God come from? Uh, well, God's God. Nothing pre, pre-exists Him. Well, how do you know that? Because He's God. The very definition of the word means that there's nothing outside of Him that He did, did not create or control. So, these are presuppositions. Another example is what we presuppose about the Bible. Uh, I heard a very interesting argument, and, and this comes up all the time, by the way. People say, well, how do you trust that the Bible is the Bible? Uh, it's just written by men. Well, obviously, you haven't done any research. You haven't done any studies to, to kind of debunk that concept or that idea. Um, although men were used in uh, the, the writing of the text uh, and bringing us about the text, uh, all Scripture is, is breathed of God. Hagios pneumos, it's spirit-breathed. It's, it's brought to us by God Himself. And if you're ever confused by that, we actually did a class, uh, it's been several years ago now, on the authority of Scripture. And how do we know that the Bible is true? If you ever want to go through that again, let me know. We'll peel off and... And we'll go through it again. Uh, how can we trust the Bible? That's a presupposition that we have uh, to have an accurate understanding of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You get that from the Scriptures. You get that from the Word of God. So 
from this core starting point, we can then formulate our ideas, uh, our concepts about things the Bible says. And in particular, you know, when we talk about this study, the man of lawlessness, or if we're talking about the term antichrist, we look at our presupposition. What's our starting point? Well, our starting point is the reality of God. Our starting point is the reality of the Scriptures. So what does that say? And where are these terms used in the Bible? And, and how do we understand them in the context and the grand scheme of things and what's being said? So this is our, our starting point as we look at the man of lawlessness. Now, having understood presuppositions, the, the reality is this allows you to correct yourself. As I mentioned earlier, you, how many of you have read something in the Bible have come to a conclusion only later in life to realize that you were wrong in what you were thinking about that and you have a completely different thought about it now. The Bible did not change. Your understanding of it did. right? Uh, so this is, these are why, why people who say they don't have presuppositions, this is why they're dangerous. Because if you understand that you do have presuppositions, you can say, hey, you know what? My way of thinking about that is a little bit wrong. I need to correct my way of thinking based on what God has said. And then I fall in and I conform to what God says in His Word. And so it allows for correction uh, and it allows you to discover when you're in error. So these are things that happen to, to people uh, daily um, through personal studies, teaching series, uh, sermons. Sometimes people come to correction based on biblical preaching and teaching. Sometimes you're sitting reading on your own. And you go, now wait a minute. Seemed like I always thought this, but I see now this is saying this. So it's not just someone telling you what God says. You come to these conclusions at times on your own. How many of you have ever done that? Just in my own reading and my own understanding, I used to think something about this and then I read it in God's Word and now I think completely different about it. So that is the, the idea of how presumptions can help you uh, correct yourself when you're in error. You're able to make the switch because you presuppose what? You presuppose that this is the authority. That this is the Word of God is, is, is the focus. And because you presuppose that, there's nothing that is higher than this. You allow yourself to be conformed to this. Not what you think or what somebody else says, but what does God's Word say? And you're conformed to that. So that's a way that it can help you correct yourself. Now, we should be having constant back and forth within ourselves that questions whether we're in alignment with the full counsel of Scripture or not. We, is this accurate? Is my understanding proper? Is the way that I see this biblical? If not, I need to change. I need to shift. Right? That, that's a reality of what we all need to constantly be doing. Now, there are some things where we can look at and debate. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, us and our good brethren in the Presbyterian church who baptize babies. I'm never going to baptize a baby, right? Uh, baptism is for believers. It, it's clear in Scripture that baptism is for believers. Uh, they can't even make an argument from Scripture that it's not. They, they use other references and resources to go back to the Abrahamic covenant and circumcision. And it's like, well, well, why do you have to go through all of the gymnastics and the mental exercises to go back there um, when the New Testament says, repent every one of you and be baptized? Uh, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, right? I mean, repent. Uh, re repent of your sins. Trust upon Christ. 
and be baptized. So it's, it's pretty evident, it's pretty clear, uh, but there are arguments about it. However, there is little to no argument uh, that Jesus is going to return one day. That, that's, that's just a fact. Uh, and that's a staple argument within Scripture. So knowing that Jesus is going to return one day, what we also see is that before Jesus returns is this great apostasy, this great falling away, as well as the man of lawlessness. And some would refer to the man of lawlessness as Antichrist. The fact is that the man of lawlessness, Antichrist, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this person, this individual, will be revealed just prior to Jesus' return and will be destroyed. That's the idea that we get from Paul's writing. However, there is a lot of opinion on just exactly who or what this man of lawlessness or any Christ is. Now we've gone through some of this already, but I'm going to kind of give you a rehash as we begin to walk systematically through this text verse by verse. So the, the, first there's the general application of the term Antichrist. Now in the line of thinking of, of the general term is that any anti-Christian spirit, sentiment, whatever, that person or that idea qualifies as Antichrist. And it's important to note that Jesus spoke about this. Uh, we've referenced this, but to go back, Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, Jesus said, For false Christs and prophets will arise, they will perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray if possible even the elect. So Jesus prophesied that there are going to be a lot of false Christs uh, that raise, that, that rise up and come to power and try to deceive people. It's also important to note that, uh, get this, let me take a step back and ask you a question. Get ready. Everybody got your buzzer, got your hand ready. How many of you believe that, and we've, we've gone through Revelation verse by verse here right, already. So how many of you believe that the word Antichrist is in Revelation? Nobody? How many of you have thought or formerly thought that Revelation is all about Antichrist. Mm -hmm. Starting to get there? Anytime you say, well, the Antichrist, people will go, oh, Revelation. Actually, they won't even say Revelation. They'll go, Revelations. There's no S on the end of it, by the way. That's a pet peeve of mine. Black Book of Revelations. It's, it's actually technically like one big revelation, and it's, it's spelled out that way. Right? <laughs> so... Uh, so note that, but that being said, the word Antichrist in the New Testament, in the Bible, in the New Testament, only ever appears in John's epistles. That's the only place we see it. So it's important to note that the word Antichrist is never used by the Apostle Paul. We see false Christs used by Jesus, but the word Antichrist is only ever used by John. He's the one that explicitly uses the actual word or the actual term. So in the word itself, most people would have this idea, man, this, it's got to be everywhere in the New Testament, this Antichrist, this person who's going to rise to power. Um, the word itself only appears five times in the New Testament. How many of that, does that surprise you? It only appears five times in all of the New Testament. And yet, look 
How many of you think people in modern day, especially in certain churches and certain end times discussions, how many of you think people get way over consumed with Antichrist? I think they do. I think it's a reality. I think we should understand it. But I think people put way too much emphasis on this idea. Um, and the reality is, is that we don't actually see this too many times uh, in Scripture, and it only appears in John's writings. And the word itself is five times, and it happens only in four specific passages uh, in John's writings. So keep in mind that these writings of John, 1 John in particular, is about 60 years or so after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So um, we're, you know, Jesus lived to be about 30, 32, 33 years old. Um, here we are about 60 years uh, after that. John, late in his life, is writing these epistles. And one of the things that we see in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. So what John is saying is not there's coming a time where this man, Antichrist, is going to rise to power out of Europe and dominate everybody and everything and cause peace accords with Europe and the temple's going to be rebuilt and, and all of this stuff. John actually says... Yeah, um, you want to talk about end times? Um, we're in the last days. We're in the last hour, John says. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. We're living in the last days. Haven't you ever heard somebody say, you know, well, we're, you know, we're getting into the end times? In the first century. In 60, 70, 80, 90 AD, Paul and John are saying, we're, 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 in the, we're in the end times. In the first century. And yet people nowadays say, well, one of these days we're, the end times is coming. And yet the, the New Testament idea for the apostles is that no, 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 no. We're living in the end times. That, that's something that must be understood. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. So just a couple of verses later, John says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And by the way, everybody know Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Christ is, is translated by, from, from Messiah or anointed one. Right? So he's, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. So it's Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Who is the liar but one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one who was prophesied, that Jesus is the Savior. This is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son, who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. John was writing constantly to, about refuting the Gnostics, those who said that Jesus was not a fleshly being. They're constantly writing John is writing to refute that idea that Jesus did come in the flesh, that Jesus was the Savior. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 through 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus 
is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. <coughs> so it's, it's not something you're looking and waiting for to happen at some end time point. John is writing in the first century, look, this stuff's going on, right? This stuff is happening. Second John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So are we to say that Paul writing to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, where he said, you know, in right right before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, at, at the day of the Lord, that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Are we to say that John had no idea what he was actually talking about? Are we to say that John and Paul are at odds with one another? That they're butting heads on this idea of Antichrist and who Antichrist is? Absolutely not. The reality is, is that there were many Antichrists. They're rising to prominence. They're deceiving people. They're providing false teachings. They're denying Jesus Christ. Look at what we see in the world today. How many of you understand that Christianity is on the decline in the United States? It abundantly is. But how many of you also recognize that Christianity is on the mass incline in places like Africa and Asia? It absolutely is. So if you live in this microcosm of where you live here and you think the whole world is like this, you're mistaken. You go to places like China, Korea, even North Korea, where there's massive oppression upon Christians, Christianity is growing. Go to places like Africa. Look at the brothers and sisters who have started work there. Comrade and Bayway, so many other brothers who have gone there, started work, started pastoral works, training and equipping Bible teachers and pastors, and they're growing like crazy. And then here in the United States, we can't figure out what a woman is. But you think that that's a new idea? I'm going to show you different historically. But the Apostle John gives us clear indication that his readers in the first century were not waiting on Antichrist, but were being warned about the abundant dangers of Antichrist living in their day. In church, let me tell you, Antichrist is prevalent among us today in our countryside, in our state, in our cities, in our families. This is a real thing that you should not be looking at and saying, man, one of these days the Antichrist is going to show up. You need to be looking around and going, look at the reality of what's going on around me. And as for me and my household, we will follow the Lord. That's a much harder position to understand and take. So what John tells us is that many antichrists have come, therefore we know it's the last hour. We're living in final days. He who denies the Father and the Son is antichrist. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God is antichrist. This is the spirit of antichrist. Those who deny Jesus is coming in the flesh. Antichrist. So the Apostle Paul told Timothy this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. This is that great apostasy that we were talking about. Paul tells Timothy, in latter times. And it's not happening so much right now, although it's happening, but it's going to happen a lot more rapidly 
as we get closer to Jesus' return. So at large, what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus predicted false Christs, that they would rise up, that the apostles confirmed this during the apostolic age when the apostles were here. And there were indeed many false Christs and antichrists here prevalent during the first century. So what about this idea of a specific person that will rise to power and be the culminating antichrist? This is a popular belief within Protestantism. Uh, this is also popular with the Roman Catholic Church. We've kind of gone down that road of discussing <coughs> Roman Catholicism and what takes place there. The, the, the reality of that, that mindset is that uh, an individual, a specific person will rise to power. Uh, they will be made manifest. There will be a great peace accord. This person will be under the direct influence and power of Satan. And this particular person will rise to power and then bring an assault against the church at some point. Not Satan incarnate, not Satan in the flesh, but influenced and under the, the power of Satan. A godless fallen human man who is empowered by Satan with deception, craft, and cunningness. Now when we read the Scriptures that mention Antichrist, this thought process paints a future projection right, of this individual who will be revealed right prior to the coming. The day of the Lord. That's what we see in the idea of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Right before Christ's return. Now, it's also something that has to be considered John's term Antichrist, which only appears in John, in 1st and 2nd John, is that the same idea, or is it pointing to the exact same person that Paul is talking about in 2nd Thessalonians 2 when he says the man of lawlessness? Basically, is the Antichrist, is he the man of lawlessness, and is the man of lawlessness the Antichrist? That's what some people, they link those two things directly together. Now, having gone through Revelation, hopefully it doesn't surprise you that the word Antichrist doesn't appear in Revelation uh, at all. Um, anytime you hear somebody say, boy, Antichrist, Revelations, you know, it's, that's, first of all, they got some bad presuppositions, right? So let's level set there. They've got some bad presuppositions. Um, what you typically see, there, there is a presupposition by some that the Antichrist is the beast of Revelation. Right? And so the beast of Revelation is going to force you to take this mark or not take the mark and, and everything kind of gets spun out of control from there. So rather than looking at these passages in their, in their distinct context, there's often a broad overreach or a generalization. And that generalization will then say, well, anytime you have this idea or concept of Antichrist, then they must all be one and the same person. And that's impossible because what we're dealing with is Jesus saying many will come and the apostles saying many have come and there will be many more. And then Paul saying there will be one that rises but is destroyed right at the coming of Christ. And yet we have people that are saying that there's only ever going to be one and yet forsake all of these that the apostles talked about throughout the first century. So you, you have to understand the context and go, now wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says, right? So trying to reconcile these things. So rather than looking at the passages in context, there's typically there's an overreaching generalization. 
that all of these different texts, all of these different books, and all of these different references are actually talking about the exact same person. And that's just simply not true. So look at verses 3 and 4 of our text. 2 Thessalonians 2. Let no one deceive you in any way. Let no one deceive you. Let no one trick you. Let no one spin you out of control. For that day, if they're coming to you saying, hey, Jesus has already come back, that day will not come unless first there's the great apostasy, the great rebellion, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So note that verse 4. This individual, the man of lawlessness, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God. Not just the God, but every so-called God. (coughs) Not just a so-called God or higher being, but any object of worship. So this could be Zeus. This could be an individual in Greek mythology. This could also be worshiping a bird or a snake or a creature or whatever. But this individual, this person, exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be the God. So I'm, I'm the supreme authority. So there is a strong hearkening. Anybody know what hearkening means? Brother Sonny probably, it's an old word, it's old English. To to look back and hearken back to the glory days. But there is a strong hearkening back to the book of Daniel here. And I I somewhat alluded to this in Sunday school this morning, but Daniel chapter 8. Listen to Daniel chapter 8 verse, and I'll give you a little bit of context here. Daniel is, is by this riverside, he's praying, and he has a vision. And in his vision, he sees this ram that was just destroying anything that got in his path. And then here comes this goat. And this goat destroys the ram. And he's, he's looking, he's like, okay, I'm having this vision, I know it's a vision, but, and, and he finally he's like, what does this mean? What does this vision mean? In Daniel 8, 15, this is where we get the explanation of the vision. What, what, is, it, what is it that you were seeing? What does it mean? So verse 15 of Daniel 8, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision... I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, the river, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. It's Gabriel the archangel. I think we all know that reference. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Did I see that? This is, I'm showing you something now in Daniel's day, but this thing realistically fully plays out at the end. Right? So this is, when people talk about Daniel being a book of prophecy and Daniel being intertwined with the thinking of end times, that's absolutely true. There are references in Daniel that directly point to the end. And this is one of those, this vision. Daniel chapter 11. So Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 10, and getting into Daniel chapter 11. This is where you'll see things like the 70 weeks of Daniel. 
Um, you'll see other visions and aspects and then explanations of those visions and aspects. But once we get to Daniel chapter 11, verse 36 in particular, and the king shall do wills, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. So Daniel is receiving, tells him this is something that's going to take place at the end. And by the way, this vision, this, these rams, these are leaders. And verse 36 of chapter 11 starts to kind of sum some of this up. And the king shall do as he wills. This leader, this ruler will do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of... He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. Does that sound familiar? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 maybe, this individual who will place himself in prominence and, and command people to worship him, set himself above not just the God, but every God. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we kind of see this hearkening back to Daniel chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. That hey, in the end times, everyone who rises to prominence, but we also understand that the end times... We're kind of living in that biblical age right now. From the first time Jesus ascended, from the time He was crucified and ascended, we began the countdown, right? So here we are living in this day and age, and we're looking, hearkening back to what Daniel said. We're looking at what this Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says with the apostles. And there's, there's a few key questions that arise out of this passage. Number one, who is the man of lawlessness? Right? Everybody, that's the big question everybody wants to try to answer. Who is the man of lawlessness in verse 3. Now, there is one group... Now, we're going to go a little bit back to our end time study, our eschatology study, the big word. Now, there are there is a group of people who believe that this man of lawlessness is Nero, the Roman emperor. And at, at that time, it gets chaotic. And this is a, a reference that... The, there's a, there's a group that believes uh, that at this time, everything was kind of culminated uh, at this particular period with Nero. So the man of lawlessness is actually fulfilling with Nero the Roman emperor back in the early first century. Right? So that's one idea. The second, the, the general Protestant historical view where most of us are going to fall is historically speaking, the papacy, the Pope. We've been through that, talking about the Catholic Church and all that. So the papacy, this is a universal view of Protestantism. So when we look back throughout the first century, we're getting into the Roman Catholic Church, getting into the like 400, 500, 600s, where the Catholics to prominence. Once you look historically back at first century, it was the idea that there would be this individual that rises to prominence and power, seat of authority, then you go past the Catholic Church into the Reformation, 1500s, and all of those Protestants protesting Rome come out and go, yeah, that thing, the Catholic Church, oh, that's the Antichrist. <laughs> uh, I mean, and we talked about some of the ideas there. Look at the, pap the, the, the papacy. Look at the popes, ex-cathedra, sitting on a seat, declaring themselves to be able to, to trump the Scriptures and ex-cathedra order out words, order out what God has decreed in and of themselves as a man. Uh, so that is a huge view that was dominant in the church 
up until about 100 years ago. So historically speaking, that is the dominant view of who is the man of lawlessness, who is Antichrist culminated as the man of lawlessness, and eventually in the very, very end, it is the destruction of the Pope and the Catholic Church. Right? So from 100 years and up until now, what's caused this idea to change? Does anybody remember the system of end times that has become prominent 100 years? Dispensationalism. Right? Dispensationalists have a completely different view of this thing. Right? And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the general Protestant view has been the there is a continuing of lawlessness century culminating right before Jesus' return and then he will destroy that. Uh, and this will culminate with a particular leader or pope in the end that will be destroyed. So that's the general idea. The dispensationalists, that happens. Their times thinking in this way up until the late 1800s, right? And so when you, how many of you heard series? That is dispensationalism 101, right? The, the idea of dis, that, that dispensational thought process, that is the Left Behind series. Tim LaHaye. Uh, how many of you have ever seen, uh, heard of John Hagee? You know John Hagee? He gives these prophecies on Revelation and all this stuff. That's this. Anybody, how many of you, this idea, well, look what's going on in Israel. Israel's in a, in a, in, Israel got their statehood back. Israel, 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 Israel. Likely dispensationalists, right? That, that's, the, that's the train that they go down. <clears throat> so what is the dispensationalist? What is their viewpoint of this man of 2 Thessalonians? By the way, this is the popular worldview right now, particularly in the United States, because it is a very charismatic, um, sensational process. But it is a complete... Everything to do with Antichrist in the dispensational world is 100% future. There is no culminating concept of Antichrist.